Welcome to the first episode of True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and I am glad to have you here with me. Uh, it has been a passion of mine to take on this project. Uh, I've done a lot of research on a lot of these stories, uh, some a lot harder than others to look up. Um, and it is my privilege to you know, bring these stories to light. Um, I have lived all over the city, so doing the research on a lot of these stories, it's kind of crazy how close to home they are. And if you're from San Antonio, uh, you're going to see just how many are in your backyard as well. It's kind of crazy. Um, if you're not from San Antonio and you're listening to this podcast, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Um, I'll take all the constructive and non-constructive criticism you want to throw at me. Uh, if you're listening to newer episodes, you'll probably realize this one is a train wreck. Uh, it's coming straight off the hip because I recorded this thing about 80 times and I hated it every single time. It sounded like a robot reading from a script. Then I realized I know this story backwards and forwards and it sucks. It's hard. It's not easy to read, let alone read it through a script listen back to it and then realize how horrible it actually sounds not just because you know the way it came out but because uh, there's a lot of detail uh, when you're looking up uh, stories and I know there's some podcasts out there that do that and that's cool if it works for them Um, I do listen to them I'm not going to call anybody out by name but there are some that kind of go hard into it and they get a lot of crap for it and I you know I see it on both sides um, for one, uh, it's reporting, uh, so you know it's hard to, to tell a journalist not to do the reporting. And on the other hand, uh, these were victims, and they have families, and those families have, you know, to listen or at least be in the limelight with it because you're putting their story out there. And when I'm reading these, you know, uh, I want to be respectful to those families. I want to be respectful to the victims. They deserve that in the least. Um, so I, I would love to say that, I, you know, some of these podcasts are going to be in remembrance for these victims. But, I mean, in, in what way, in what capacity? You know, it's it's unfair. It's unfair, truly. So, again, just thanks for being here. Um, we got a two-part episode. That's going to be my first drop. I thought about doing this one later on but I couldn't um when I found the story when I went through it it was crazy and it got crazier and crazier and I couldn't uh believe just how much um there was to uncover to unfold uh so I'm just gonna go through it and uh, we're gonna we're gonna get on with it thanks for being here depicts accounts of violence, sexual assault, and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised.
Today's story is about Rosa Maria Rosado. She was a hardworking mother, a daughter, a student, and an unfortunate victim of a broken system of violent offenders. The senseless taking of her life wasn't the story she wrote for herself, but it was the one to ultimately bring down the endless violence of a predator and possible serial killer. The story takes place back all the way uh, in 2001. Uh, on March 31st, her daughter Patricia recounts as she phoned her mom to wake her up to go to work. She worked the overnight job at a telemarketing firm, and I can't find whether or not she took the bus every night, but she at least took the bus this night. When Rosa didn't come home in the morning, Patricia contacted the police in the Heidi Search Center. Twelve years old knowing to contact the Heidi Search Center. I didn't even think I know what the Heidi Search Center was when, when I was 12. So, proud of you. She also posted a sign in her neighborhood that read, Mom, please call me and let me know you're okay. I miss you. Please come home. Love, Patricia. Five days later, on April 5th, a woman from Kazakhstan studying statistics at the UTSA campus by the name of S.L. Abdikapovora, and yeah, I butchered that name, but F her. She gave a five-page written statement detailing her knowledge of Rosa's abduction, robbery, sexual assault, and murder by two men by the name of Ramon Hernandez and Santos Minetes. On April 6th, she gave her full statement and I have it here, but I'm not going to read it in whole. I will cite my sources if you really want to read it. It's kind of hard, but I'm going to just kind of give you the gist of it. Uh, she starts off by uh, talking about the end of the night, not the beginning of it, which kind of, for me, it, I had to go through everybody's statements to kind of depict where this happened and how it happened because they all kind of talk over each other in their statements and and one blames the other uh this a cell person doesn't even take any kind of responsibility for anything she did that night she starts off in her statement talking about how she got back to the hotel uh it took about 10 minutes to get back the motel was uh, somewhere towards uh culebra and she was at a Walmart on 410 and Evers. Um, she talks about how she got back. And as soon as she came back, she saw um, Rosa on the bed with only her top on. And her hands and face were covered and duct taped. Or not duct taped, but clear white tape. Um, he said that he she saw Santos uh, raping her and that she didn't want it and that she felt bad for her so she couldn't look at her but not once did she ever say that she tried to stop it that she told them no and i mean she could have been in fear for her life but nowhere in her statement did she read that nowhere did she put down that you know she was afraid that they would hurt her or that she uh even did anything to stop it whatsoever she talks about going into the bathroom and out of the bathroom and into the bathroom and out of the bathroom. I, I guess because it was uncomfortable for her to sit there uh, and watch this man brutally uh, assault this girl. And and yeah, she, she puts it in there that she didn't deserve it. 
because she absolutely didn't. And there's one part where she puts, it was upsetting me very much. But that was it. She never said anything about it. She talks about how um, she had a blanket uh, from her car covering the girl, I guess, in between assaults. I don't know. She doesn't really go into that. And she talks about she doesn't remember which one of the guys told her to go get a shovel. Um, but they told her to go get a shovel. And she talked about how Ramon uh, told she told Ramon that she wanted him to go with her to Walmart. But he told her that he had to stay. He had to stay with uh, Santos and, and, and be there with him. And, uh, you know, you're assuming at this point it's because he wants her gone so that, you know, he can rape the girl too. Because nowhere in her statement does she put that um, Ramon was um, assaulting this girl at this point. Um, so finally she, she gets out of the room, uh, tries to get Ramon to go back with her again, and uh, he says no. Uh, she then goes to the Walmart on 410 and Evers sometime around 11 p.m. she thinks uh, and buys a straight wooden handle shovel with the curved edge. Um, when she says she gets back she parked the car knocked on the door but uh, Santos um, wouldn't let him in. Uh, she asked what was going on what did uh, they do in there and he just said she's gone she says what do you mean you killed her and he said yes she is gone uh, and he told her to wait outside um, while she was waiting there Santos came back out and called her to the room when she went back in she saw her on the floor uh, no longer with the coverings or the tape on her hands uh, and she was gone she was dead um, at this point like she just talks about how they told her they have to bury her and that's what the shovel was for. I mean, at this point, she didn't realize what the hell she was buying a shovel for. You know, it's 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 mind-boggling. It really is. Uh, in her statement, then she details how she um, helped transport the body near the UTSA campus along 1604 and buried her in a shallow grave. Um, going through many, many different sources... I have so many pieces and and they don't really talk about where one thing might have happened before another um so i don't know exactly how she came to to talk to the cops but there was an fbi agent involved and several um detectives from the san antonio police uh, homicide unit um one in particular was john kellogg um, and in his testimony, he claims that he was assigned in the unit and contacted by an FBI agent about the homicide. Uh, him, three other officers, met with a cell in a parking lot of a Fuddruckers restaurant um, in Austin. I found that out later. This was in Austin. Um, and why they were all the way over there, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he found out later that they took the car to Austin because they needed uh they wanted to get rid of evidence apparently so there uh a cell advocate told the officer she knew where the body was buried took them to the campus um off six and four chase hill boulevard and while the search for the body was commenced she led them back to the stewart motel uh evidence was collected 
and at this point they were going to go get arrest warrants for Santos and Ramon. She also then told Kellogg that she was pregnant and that the father of her child was Ramon Hernandez. The uh, owner of the motel also testified at this trial and told um, the court that uh, he remembers renting the room to this girl uh, and she registered on the name S.L. Lee. Um, don't know where she came with Lee from, but I guess it doesn't matter. And uh, you look up, I look up this motel and, you know, it's one of those kind of rundown places. I'm pretty sure they didn't ask for an ID if she paid for, with cash, you know, and again, 2001. I know it's not that long ago, but I mean, it's like a world apart when you talk about uh, the kind of advances and uh, things that we ask or require now. but again, it was a rundown place, so they didn't really, I guess, need to have any kind of ID. So it doesn't matter. And he also testified that he didn't see anybody else with her. I guess not that he was looking, because it would have been pretty easy to, you know, see a girl with a bag on her face or, or something over her face that, you know, kind of looks suspicious if you think about it. Um, but he did uh, talk about how the police did go back there. Um, when they searched, they cut out carpet and they took some chair cushions as well. Uh, as well as a, an employee from Walmart um, identified Rosa. I'm sorry, not Rosa. He identified a cell on a videotape um, of her purchasing the shovel, and that was at approximately 10:45 that night. Um, and based on her statement, again, uh, Detective Kellogg and Detective Andrew, uh, they went to Austin to inspect the car that had been used. Um, Kellogg was notified that the evidence pertinent in this case may have been dropped over the bridge. Um, tried to find which location that was, but they didn't get into it. Uh, James Estrada testified. Uh, he's a sergeant. I'm sorry. He's a sergeant with the San Antonio Police Department. He testified that after four and the other detectives uh, went to the site as well, and then he returned early in the morning hours of April 6th. And this is where he meets with Santos Mineres. Uh, he also advised him of his rights. Uh, Mineres waived them and the interview proceeded. He then told Mineres that he was under arrest for capital murder, to which he immediately denies any involvement. Uh, when he was confronted that um, a cell aptica before had already given a statement, um, he again denied any involvement. Uh, then Mineres, I guess, in that, you know, bad cop situation, kept pushing him, and Estrada, you know, pushing him, pushing him, Mineres finally says, what do you want me to tell you? You know, and, and uh, Sergeant Estrada finally just told him he wanted the truth, and they, I guess it worked, because he got him to give him a written statement, and they also admitted that at trial. In his statement, um, he relates that on the night of Rosa's death, he saw her at a bar where he had met with her two weeks before described her short and small with long black hair and the one picture that I found of Rosa on the internet um, beautiful girl long black hair in this um, what looks like a uh, one of those pictures you get taken at the mall uh, we had them here at South Park Mall uh, I, I know I had mine as well and so the the description already is is on key with you know this girl and so the cop already, I mean, he already has him. At least he has him with her. 
So he also noted that she was wearing a black jacket, black pants, and some jewelry. Um, and then he identifies Ramon Hernandez as a sales boyfriend um, who was at the bar with him and Rosa. He said that the three of them left together and went riding around. And then Mineta said he was too drunk after drinking a 12-pack and claims that Santos took him home. Um, again, Estrada pushes him and asks him whether he had anything to do with the killing of that girl. He denies and denies, uh, saying he didn't even know she was dead. You know, and Estrada finally uh, testified that he didn't even know the identity of the victim until Santos told him. So at this point, you know, this dude is just digging his own grave, you know, pun intended. But it's exactly what he's doing. Um, Detective Andrew Carey and the other detective that was at the scene uh, at the Fuddruckers parking lot where they all met and went to the site. Um, he also went to the site where the body was found. He went to the Stewart Motel. And then he's the one that obtained the arrest warrants for both Ramon and Santos. Um, while Estrada was uh, interviewing Mineres, Carrion interviewed Hernandez, but he couldn't obtain a statement on his first try. So the next day, he went to Austin with Kellogg and Cynthia Hunt, an evidence technician, and they are the ones that inspected the car. Uh, and they did find some good evidence there, so I, you know we'll get into that a little later. Um, but then he returned to San Antonio and went to talk to Ramon Hernandez again. And based on this conversation, um, he went to go see Santos at the jail. And after advising of his rights again, he asked if he could give another statement. And he said that he would, but not at the jail. So they were, took him back to the police station and he took his second statement. And in this one, it's uh, completely different. This time he talks about how on the night of Rosa's death um, that... Ramon and Asel picked him up at his apartment and he did identify Ramon as a friend from high school and Asel as his pregnant girlfriend or Ramon's pregnant girlfriend um, and that Rosa was already in the back seat and she had a towel over her face you know so at this point he's already talking about that she was already had been abducted apparently um, and that Asel was driving the car uh, a blue Honda, he reports. Um, they, Acel drove to Hernandez's house and planned to take Rosa into the shed in the backyard. However, the three of them decided there were too many cars around. Um, it's just a little, uh, I, I couldn't find the exact address, but I, the area that they talk about was just like a old neighborhood um, on the west side. And at this point, you know, it, the date coincides it was you know a weekend so there was definitely going to be some people awake and a small neighborhood yeah so I mean kind of does make sense um but then they couldn't do it so Hernandez instructed us to go inside and get some stuff tie the girl up this is where she comes back with a roll of thick clear tape that she used to tape that he that okay this is where Santos gets a little unclear that I'm not sure if it's Hernandez that ties her up or it's a cell, but he's definitely at the same time what a cell was doing, not taking any responsibility. Oh, I didn't tape her hands together. I'm not the one that did that. Um, so they, you know, Hernandez decided. He keeps putting it on Hernandez. Her, Ramon was the one who decided 
to t tie her up. He's the one who had her in the car already, and now he's the one deciding to go to the hotel. They stopped at one, but Hernandez didn't like the way it looked, uh, so they continued down the street and found, apparently, the Stewart Motel. Um, this is when he says the cell goes in and rents the room, so that all coincides. Um, when they go into the room, Hernandez pushes Rosa on the bed, and a cell is the one that starts going through her purse, and Hernandez strips Rosa of her clothing. So, again, he's just putting all the blame on everybody but himself. He didn't do anything. He's just there. He's just a bystander, you know. Um, and at this point, he even talks about how, you know, Hernandez is the one to put the blanket on Rosa. So, it's it, again, it's just all, it's everybody else's fault. Um, Minette is related that uh, Acel found some money in Rosa's purse and that um, Hernandez at that point instructed her to go get some cleaning materials um, I guess because he already knew he was going to kill her because I mean what else do you need the cleaning materials for if you're not going to leave that kind of evidence behind you know um, at this point Santos talks about how he just started watching a game on TV you know, I looked it up uh, the night the Bucks and the Spurs were playing, and we all know even back in 2001, like they were on, you know, like the Fox Sports or something. So, or it could even been like Ken's Five. Who knows? Like the, there was a TV game. There was a game on the TV, so he was preoccupied. So you know, again, he's not doing anything. Um, and when Asel comes back, I guess from this first trip, because. I'm not sure they don't talk he doesn't talk about the shovel at this point so she's going to go get some cleaning materials when she comes back um, Hernandez starts going through Rosa's purse again and they found that Rosa lived near Hernandez um, Santos talks about how he learned the girl's name was Rosa and that she lived on the same street as uh, Ramon's grandmother um, he then puts in a statement that he believes Hernandez had been watching her for a while because she lives close by um it just seemed too you know coincidental um so at this point they also found a money order and a bank receipt for three thousand dollars um along with an atm card uh it says that a cell pulls tape from rosa's mouth and that whether they could cash the money order rosa tells them that they can't cash it because it's already been filled out and the bank receipt was for 3000 she said she no longer had that she just paid off some student loans this girl's working hard overnight uh, as far as i can tell she was a single mom or at least because i, I heard no mention of a father there this girl's working hard paying off student loans like she had been doing everything she needed to do at this point and ends up in this situation it just sucks lastly Acel asked Rosa for her ATM number, and Rosa gave it to her willingly. But told her she only had about five or ten dollars in the bank. Um, she also told him that she had a twelve-year-old daughter. And at this point, Hernandez tells Rosa that if she doesn't do what she said, she'd never see her daughter again. So at this point, uh, Santos uh, finally does admit that he started having sex with Rosa. Um, he talks about how she probably knew it was coming um, like the piece of S he is he talks about how Acel and Ramon come out of the bathroom and begin to watch and it made him feel uncomfortable um, 
and that Asel also tried to assault Rosa, but that, you know, Rosa didn't want to, obviously. Um, again, that, you know, their statements don't really add up to each other, but when do they ever? Uh, he talks about how they resumes watching the basketball game, and at this point, Santos and Rosa are just, you know, walking around Rosa and talking to her. Uh, that they go back in and out of the bathroom like several times, you know, which is just weird. But now he talks about Hernandez telling Asel to go get a shovel. So we have two different trips now of Asel leaving to who cleaning supplies and now to get a shovel. Um, and that Minetas told Hernandez that Rosa had seen his face. Um, but Minetas says, well, she didn't see my face. And, you know, he said it doesn't matter. He had seen his, uh, Ramon's face and Asel's face. So, obviously, this was it. So, finally, they, you know, Ramon gets Asel out of the uh, motel. And Santos uh, reports that Ramon told him to go to the bathroom so that he could take care of business. And this is where he talks about Ramon assaulting Rosa. And this part is crucial because he talks about being gone for about 35 or 40 minutes. And that when he comes back out, um, he sees Hernandez taking the tape from Rosa's mouth and says, that's it. And he asks him what he meant. And he said, she's gone. He says he's not sure how he killed her. They take the body and wash it in the bathtub. And at this pace... At this place, they put her body on the carpet and wrap it in the red blanket. When Asel finally returns with the shovel, she begins cleaning the room and removing evidence of their crime. Ramon and Santos take Rosa's body to the car where Asel joins them and they drive to Hernandez's house. They leave her items and the stuff from the motel room. They go to the UTSA campus and bury her in the shallow grave. And they return to Hernandez's house and burn Rosa's belongings. At this point, he talks about how Asel and, and Ramon drive him home when they're done. He also says a few days later that Ramon contacts him and says that he's worried about the DNA evidence they left behind and that he thinks that they should go move the body. Um, but Santos says he doesn't want to mess with it. Uh, he also talks about Ramon saying that he might have to kill Asel because she's freaking out and she might, you know, confess. Um, this is where we get into the evidence. James Garcia, a senior forensic scientist with the Bear County Criminal Investigation, talks about recovering hairs from a sweatshirt. Um, there were hair, three hairs, at least, uh, from Rosa's head and two pubic hairs, um, one each belonging to Ramon and Santos. You know, how how fitting that it's both of them. Um, Garen Foster, also of the Bear County Criminal Investigation Laboratory, tested that he found semen on the carpet um, where the offense had taken place and that Minetis' genetic profile was a perfect match and he'd have to get 400 quadrillion people before he'd get that same genetic profile again. So all in all, you're screwed. Um, and the chief medical examiner, Vincent DeMeo, testified that uh, the autopsy revealed that she had been beaten 
about her face and neck. Um, her death was also um, by asphyxiation and that uh, there was evidence of sexual assault. So at least Santos's testimony, or I'm sorry, his statement, it, 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 most of it is holding up. Um, as far as him not taking, you know, full responsibility, it's almost moot because he's there, he's an accomplice, he assaulted, I mean, he'll get life, right? I mean, without a doubt, if not the death penalty. Um, I did some kind of digging as much as I can on Santos Mineres, and this is when I, uh, I'm talking about the actual, um, the, the, the injustice of the parole system and you know I, I understand that you know probation officers parole officers they all have a tough job there's too many probates too many parolees that they have to account for and in having to account for these people you know you can't keep up with all of them but when it comes to Santos and Ramon, they were arrested together several times. They knew each other um, before they were, you know, from high school and in through their, their criminal history, continuing to be arrested together, continuing to, to be around each other should not have happened. Somebody should have been on top of that this girl should not have died that night they should never have been allowed to be near each other you know, um, Santos's um, criminal history dates back to the late 1980s where he was given a six-year sentence um, released on parole in July of 91 six months later new conviction 10-year sentence for an unauthorized use of a motor vehicle um, then again released in September of 1992 on parole. This time it took him five years to go back, but he finally went back with a 17-year sentence um, uh, for burglary with, of a habitation with the intent to commit theft and again released only three years later. So you give him a 17-year seven sentence and he's out within three years. You know that that doesn't make sense. This dude was the model prisoner, or what? Because it doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. He should never have been on the street in 2001 for this to happen. Anyways, assuming that the jury believed his version of limited participation of the aggravated sexual assault and murder, his statement alone is more than enough to find legally sufficient. Um, he he admitted to being there he admitted to assaulting her they had all the evidence and I mean at this point he's screwed right the San Antonio police uh, arrested Ramon in the early hours of April 6 and approximately from 225 to 5 a.m. Uh, police detectives John and Andrew John Kellogg Andrew Carrion they interviewed Hernandez and gave him his Miranda warnings Initially, he denied even knowing um, Santos or Cell, you know, his pregnant girlfriend. I don't, I don't know her. Don't know her at all. Um, eventually, he admitted to knowing uh, Mineres, but then asked for an attorney. And this is where uh, Carrion couldn't obtain the first statement. So first try, couldn't do it. Um, 
Detective Kellogg testified that even though uh, he wasn't there for the entire process, that he was there for the second shorter period before leaving the office at 3.30 a.m. And the reason this is uh, significant is because there was moments, there's an appeal that happened later on. This is why I have most of this information because it's really hard to find um, cases that are solved either right away or like they get a confession because you know and good on the you know the homicide department the San Antonio Police Department if they don't have to release some information then they don't you know and again that's like out of respect for the victims the victims families they don't need to be putting that kind of stuff out there if it doesn't need to be out there there's no point in, in hurting anybody else um, when you don't need to so the reason that I have a lot of this information is because when it goes to appeal um, and the appellant has the opportunity for all the evidence to be um, made public and that they are trying to overturn whether it's from evidence or you know lack of defense any whatever it is so um, at this point um, they talk about how Ramon wants to get his case overturned uh, or at least uh, the appeal of it because of uh, a problem with the, his anxiety and what they did and how he felt pressured um, through the interviews. So at 11.45 on April 7th, this is a day after he was arrested, Hernandez met with the Bear County Adult Detention Center social worker and then later with the release supervisor, Deputy Contreras, um, Deputy Contreras notified the homicide office that Hernandez wished to speak to Detective Carrion. Uh, later the same day, Detective Carrion and Kellogg met with Hernandez, and after giving him his Miranda warnings again, they transported him to the headquarters where he gave a formal written statement. It was nine pages and edited very carefully uh, according to the detectives, um, and, on, and his statement was executed on April 7th. He claims that he and Mineres decided to rob Rosa when they spotted her near a bus stop. And again, this is where it was crucial about her going to the bus stop because she was going to work. She worked overnight. Her daughter also knows that she was going to a bus stop, but Asel didn't talk about it and Santos didn't talk about it, but Ramon does. They saw her at a bus stop. They decided to rob her. Um, he claims that Mineres is the person who assaulted and murdered Rosa, though. So he takes no claim in that, just as Santos didn't, at least not for the murder. Um, but he claims that all of the information in his written statement was um, accurate. Uh, at this point, he talks about, um, or I'm sorry, they talk about the uh, appeal, okay? So... The social worker that Hernandez spoke with on the morning of April 7th, uh, he testified, the social worker did, that Hernandez appeared anxious when she spoke with him. Um, she indicated that he wanted to get something off his chest. He, he, told, he tells her he wants to get something off his chest. So she halts her interview with him and had the booking sergeant take him away. Uh, this is when she contacts the release supervisor who then contacts Carrion. Um, she talks about how Hernandez looked anxious and upset, but she didn't consider him suicidal and that exact, his exact words to her were that he would be feel better if he got something off his chest. Uh, 
Um, again, the detective from the SAPD department talks about getting a phone call um, that Detective Carrion was needed down at the ad adult detention center. Um, when Hernandez was booked into jail, he was given Prozac. When he asked for a doctor, he became insistent and the mental health social worker called for the detention officer. Hernandez claims that he was experiencing a panic attack through his interrogation by Detective Andrew Carrion because um, he was suffering from the withdrawal of the drug clonopin. He had been taking clonopin for his PTSD and anxiety disorder until his doctor recently tried to get him off of it. Uh, he also testified that he had been resisting um, the detox by getting some from his uncle, but he eventually ran out and he was now experiencing withdrawal. Um, the trial court denied the motion to suppress, so, you know, he, he was trying to get his testimony and his written statement thrown out because of, of all this, and they decided, no, uh, everything that the officers did uh, was by the book. They did not coerce him. They gave him enough um, of Prozac to calm him down. Um, and at this point, they even had his doctor come and say that what he was given was more than enough that should have been able to, to, to take care of him. Um, a psychiatrist talked about the fact that he was given 20 milligrams of Prozac, which is the equivalent of about two cups of coffee, uh, that he appeared anxious but, you know, coherent. And at this point, they're trying to, you know, overturn everything he says. Um, the only evidence that Hernandez has is that he was having a panic attack and he called his mom. So his mom was on, you know, his side as well. But at the same time, there was nothing they had that, you know, the only thing that was what it looks like is he was afraid that he was being you know, he was caught for murder at this point. There, there's nothing else around that. You're, of course you're experiencing a panic attack. You're caught. You're done. You're going to prison the rest of your life. If not, you know, this is Texas. Uh, there's the death penalty. Um, and this is early 2000s. So, yeah, they were, they were putting a lot of people to death at that time. Um, so the only evidence supporting that he was having withdrawal symptoms was from his mom and the rest of the court they didn't find any reason to you know uh, claim his confession involuntary uh, his trial counsel conducted the appropriate defense and they didn't pursue the withdrawal defense he was also trying to get um, the the court to throw out his testimony that he uh, received ineffective assistance of counsel um, but they obviously they they didn't use that either um, at this point, more sophisticated DNA testing revealed that Minetas couldn't be excluded as a possible source of semen found on the carpet, uh, carpet stain to the motel room that Assel led him to. And her story also linking Hernandez and Minetas' murder. But it also linked Hernandez to a DNA match in CODIS that was considered a cold case uh, in the San Antonio Homicide Department. During the investigation of Rosa Maria Rosalo's homicide, they also linked Hernandez uh, through his DNA from a case in the mid-1990s. In that case, Sarah Gonzalez, 13, and her cousin Priscilla Almarez, 12, were reported missing on December 16, 1994, 
and found the next day in the Rodriguez Park. It's on the south side. Um, that's going to be part two of the story. It's going to take us even further down the crow path and the sick mind of Ramon Hernandez. And even further into the broken structure of our parole system. Because as much as Santos should not have been on the streets, you know, Ramon, for everything that he had been doing, caught, arrested, and charged, he should never have been on the streets in 2001. And for Rosa, it's heartbreaking because I, like I said, I, I was reading through all the things that, you know, and there's not a lot. I mean, I looked, I, I didn't, I'm not going to go searching for families. I'm not going to be doing interviews. I don't want to bring something like that up. You know, her daughter was 12 years old at the time in 2001. So again, it's, it, she's a grown woman now at this point, you know, hopefully she's found some peace. Um, knowing her mom was watching over her somewhere. And, but it, it's, it's not fair when you see that this woman was working so hard to have a better life for herself, for her daughter, her family. Like, she was just going to work that night, you know? And whether they forced her in that car or because, again, Santos talks about knowing her, from the bar two weeks before they probably said hey you get in the car let's we'll take you to work you ain't got to take the bus and she trusted him you know I, I don't know it sucks like i said uh at the beginning of this episode i i have um i've been reading so many different sources and i'm gonna cite them in the show notes i'm gonna give credit where credit's due because you know i didn't do the work to to put all this stuff down and and get it out there i'm just trying to put it in a podcast and 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 make this story known for whatever the heck it's worth i don't know um so part two will be coming out hopefully in a week after this one drops um i just want to thank all y'all for joining me on true crime san antonio uh i am just another san antonio native trying to bring these stories to light uh, and hopefully we'll talk soon.